Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we are covering the letter J. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we journey through the 10th letter of the alphabet is the jazzy and jocular Brendan J. Duffy. Unbelievable. That, did, did that have nothing to do with Bond? Uh, it's just the it's letter just J. A bit of wordplay on the letter J. Right, got you. I was trying to work so, it out. Then, but... Let's see what yours has got in store. Well, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Yep. And juxtaposed next to him is the juvenile and jaded Mr. Tom Wheatley. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> good work looking up the J's in the dictionary. <laughs> It's another jam-packed, jazzercise-fueled episode that covers a number of interesting people from the world of 007, including a legendary stunt driver, an iconic henchman and a divisive Bond girl. But to kick things off, let's hop off to the West Indies to visit the spiritual home of James Bond. Yeah, hang on. I'm not letting you get away with Jepisode. <laughs> Did he say Jepisode? He said Jepisode. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> That's it. Getting in the swing of things now. J is for Jamaica. So Jamaica is a an island in the Caribbean. Uh, population of 2.9 million. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not all going to be... I like this. I prefer this. <laughs> yeah, bit you're of, on board bit, with bit this. of a tour guide. Very nice. <laughs> and it was granted independence on the 6th of August 1962 from the United Kingdom. So how does this... How does it fit into the world of Bond? Well, it's intertwined quite quite a lot actually so ian fleming while he which we've covered in the ian fleming episode he wanted once he'd finished with the war to find somewhere to go and write books and noel coward had told him about jamaica and he went on this visit see the ian fleming episode uh for more but he said when we won with won this blasted war i'm going to go and live in jamaica just live in jamaica and lap it up and swim in the sea and write books so that's what he did. So he moved there in the 50s and started writing these books. In terms of how it affects the books, there are loads of stuff in the actual novels. You've got the fauna, the flora, which and then the marine life. They all show up in the books, influencing the names and the locations and the, the storylines. Like octopus, squid, barracuda, crabs. And, of course, the name James Bond as well. So that was the author of the book, Bird of the West Indies. And because Jamaica is a, it's considered a bird lover's paradise. So you've got all different kinds of birds, vultures, uh, hummingbirds, hawks. So it's a great place to do that. And that's where he got that name from, from the guy who wrote that book. The film commissioner of Jamaica, Rene Robinson, says Jamaican culture is very important to James Bond. As we all know, Bond was conceived here by Ian Fleming and the character and the country are deeply intertwined. 
There's something magical about Jamaica and it's fed into the mythology of James Bond over the years. He's a larger-than-life figure and Jamaica also plays a type of role globally. We're a small country with a small population but our global brand has a strong impact on the people around the world and that works in tandem with the Bond franchise. If you just go and look at a map of Jamaica on Google Maps and go go around the, the coastline, there are so many references to Bond. Um, it's well worth just if you've got some time to kill, just have a little look. So when Fleming moved to Jamaica, he found a house. It was a bit threadbare, so threadbare that Noel Coward called it golden eye, ear, nose and throat because it reminded him of a clinic. It was so sterile. And then Noel Coward also settled on a property quite close by called Firefly. That villa now is called Fleming Villa, so GoldenEye is called Fleming Villa, and we also touched on this. It's owned by the Island Records founder Chris Blackwell, who introduced Bob Marley uh, and reggae to the world. How much do you think it is to stay for a night? In the Fleming Villa? In the Fleming Villa, yes. What did you guess, Wheatley? Grand. He's gone for a grand. Are you going higher or lower? I'm going to go higher. It is higher. It's ten times higher. $10,000. But it does sleep ten, so we could we could split it. That's not bad, actually. So yeah. I was kind of right. I was thinking no, per person. No, no, no. You, we say that then. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Bosca Bell Aerodrome was renamed Ian Fleming International Airport on January the 12th, 2011. And this at the time was actually controversial because the locals, they thought a prominent sort of Jamaican should have been given, should have been honoured with that, the naming of the airport. But the Prime Minister of Jamaica acknowledged this and said that Ian Fleming gave Jamaica an image much larger than it would otherwise have had. So uh, as a way of justifying it, and I guess it is deserved, but you, you can't, disagree with them feeling a bit aggrieved they didn't go to a a, a native Jamaican so in terms of the films uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman decided in the early 60s that Doctor No was going to be the first film and see the Doctor No episode with Jamaica being part of the Empire at the time it meant they could get tax breaks again and then again they visited uh, they shot there again in Live and Let Die so the Crocodile Farm that, despite being set in America, that's shot in, in Jamaica. We will talk more about the locations of Live and Let Die when we get to that episode. Then, of course, you've got Laughing Laughing Waters, where that iconic scene, Sean Connery singing underneath a mango tree, and that's in Oco Rios. Other films that have been shot in Jamaica, Papillon, starring Steve McQueen, Cocktail, starring Tom Cruise, and Cool Runnings. Mm, of course, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, the latest Bond film as well is also shot in Jamaica. Uh, the scene where he's on retirement, uh, and a little just to just to finish off a little story here. In uh, December 2019, Kerry Fukunaga he mentioned that he was in discussions. He'd been in discussions with uh, Grace Jones, who is Jamaican, about a No Time to Die cameo. So they actually had a conversation while they went snorkeling. And this was his his and right next to Goldeneye. They went for a snorkel, and he was trying to tempt her into appearing in the film. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. But yeah, I thought that was quite nice. Uh, Did you say unfortunately? Unfortunately, well, you. <laughs> it, well, she wouldn't have been playing Mayday. Oh right, okay. I mean, that's yeah. Still not sure with that, but uh... well, there you go. There's Jamaica. It's a, in, a very crucial part of the James Bond world, isn't it? I mean, the books, it's just wrapped in Jamaica. You can see that he's he's written it there. You can really feel it, can't you? Um, I've never been to Jamaica. Have either of you two been? No. 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 Oh, but I would, I would love to go. It's just... Maybe we can mm. chip in. We can stay at GoldenEye sometime. Yeah, for a night. Yep. <laughs> and never go on holiday again. <laughs> We're, lo- we're launching our Patreon now. Pay for us now to <laughs> go to Jamaica. <laughs> Jay is for Jaws. Finally. You've been looking forward to this one. Can't wait. Um, Jaws, I think it's safe to say, played by uh, Richard uh, Keel. He is one of... 
for for the Roger Moore era for the seventies and the eighties, he is like the big the big henchman. He's the odd job of of, of Roger Moore's era, and so much so that his the character of Jaws has sort of appeared in various guises across film and screen because he was such an important character on that and the the reason why he got brought back for two. So uh, Jaws, um, he plays the role uh, where well, he, he he plays the henchman in um, both The Spiral of Me and Moonraker. Um, he's just basically a really big, hard killer with ridiculous steel teeth, which he sometimes uses to kill victims, but not not all, all the time. He, he appears first in Spy Love Me. He's working for Carl Stromberg. And in the next film, they liked him so much that they brought him back. And then he's like a hired hand. There's a scene in uh, Moonraker where Hugo Drax gets a call and um, it's letting him know that Jaws is available for hire. And he seems quite pleased with that. And he hires him in to, to, to work for him. And uh, at, at, he was apparently there was also uh, talk of bringing him back for Fear Your Eyes Only. But uh, because they went down the route of a more serious Bond and Jaws, by the end of Moonraker, was not a very serious villain, um, he was pulled from that, which I think is probably a good idea. Can you imagine Fear Eyes Only with Jaws in it? So he's he's basically famous for being basically invulnerable. He's he's like can't be killed. He, he falls out of planes he, without parachutes, survives. He falls off the Iguazu Falls in um, Brazil. Uh, buildings fall on him. He just he, he just can't be killed. He's a ridiculous character. It wouldn't have happened in in the Sean Connery days. Um, and yeah, he's just basically can do anything, and Bond can't fight him. Um, so he has to be quite in, in clever in, in the way that he dispatches Jaws. But by the end of Moonraker, he becomes an ally to to Roger Moore because of Drax's uh, base, his space base. He finds out that he's doing a sort of you know, try to kill the human race and Jaws and Dolly, his love interest, don't fit into that. So he goes up against Drax and he actually is party to saving the day at the end of it. But in the books, uh, he was actually inspired by a real character in the books. It wasn't a character called Jaws. He was renamed for the films. Uh, in Spy Love Me novel, uh, there's a there's a guy called Sol Horror Horowitz um, and he has steel capped teeth. So he was sort of the the idea behind Jaws, only very loosely. The character's not really based on him. But uh, apparently in the storyboard for Moonraker, Jaws was meant to appear with a Largo-style eye patch and a moustache. I think that's quite a good idea. I'd love to have seen that. Apparently as well, originally when they designed his teeth, it was a lady called Katharina Kath- uh, Kubrick-Hobbs. She designed the teeth... Um, to be sort of cog-like in shape, which is what, which is what he ends up with. Because originally they were going to do it as pointy teeth, like a vampire, but it just looked too scary and too ridiculous. So she came up with this idea of making them look like normal teeth, but you know, a little bit, a little bit more rounded. So yeah, he, uh, he eventually got um, Richard Keel got sent to a dentist to sort of work on these new things for his teeth. Uh, and he said he could only wear them for less than a minute before they made they made him start gagging. So it made filming those scenes that he was in very, very difficult. When the scenes were filmed of him biting through a cable, uh, apparently they used a, uh, that was actually made from licorice. So he did bite through that. And it was just a big, big chunk of licorice, which sounds quite fun if you like licorice. I don't think I'd enjoy that. And yeah, so uh, after... Uh, Jaws was in the films. The teeth eventually were displayed as part of an ex- exhibition at the Science Museum uh, in London to commemorate the 40th anniversary of, of Dr. No. Most of the information around Jaws doesn't come from the book Jaws. It comes from the novelization written by Christopher Wood, who who wrote quite a lot of detail on um, on Jaws in his novelization. Apparently, the real name of Jaws was uh, Zub... I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Zubig... Zbigniew Kryzewiecki, something like that. And apparently, he was he was born in Poland, and he was um, the son of a strongman who worked in a traveling circus and a wardress of a women's prison in Krakow. So that's an interesting bit of background towards Jaws, the character. As I mentioned, he he's one of the characters that has really stood the test of time. Um, maybe. I imagine that people who aren't even Bond fans, if you said to them, can you give me two or three Bond villains? Jaws would crop up pretty high in that list. 
And as a result, he appears in quite a lot of other stuff as well. So he's, he's a character in James Bond Jr. He's also one of the main characters in the multiplayer, um, as well as a single-player mission on Nintendo 64's GoldenEye. Uh, he's also in Everything or Nothing. Uh, he's in GoldenEye 007 and 007 Nightfire. And he's also in the Sega Mega Drive game called James Bond 007 The Duel. Uh, and Mythbusters, uh, I'm guessing you've seen Mythbusters before, TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Mythbusters did, did a thing on on Jaws just to find out if a man with steel teeth could actually bite through a cable car wire. Of course not. They, it, of course not. They no. couldn't. No. no. And they actually built um, hydro, hydro, hydraulic press to use the teeth, and at, even at 10 times the strength of a human, it couldn't, they couldn't do that. Um, there's an interesting scene in Inspector Gadget. I've never seen this. Butler, you're the only one here with kids, uh, so I'm assuming you might have seen this. The film? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm aware of it though, because it isn't. Is odd job in it as well? Well, Richard Keel's the only one who's actually in a Bond film. In it, they have people that look like the characters from the other Bond film. So odd job is in there. There's a knickknack equivalent in there, but Richard Keel's the only real one in there. Um, I, I think it's just like a very quick scene, just to reference it. I, I, I be honest, I've probably only seen Inspector Gadget for about three minutes and turned it off. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, we we will talk in more depth about Jaws in the films when we do them. So Moonraker and the Spider of Me. But a little bit about Richard Richard Dawson Keel. Uh, so he was he died actually at the age of seventy five um, at the age of seventy five in two thousand and fourteen from Detroit in Michigan. Uh, he was he he had an extraordinarily tall build, um, but it was actually due to something. Uh, which was a result of giganticism, uh, gigantism, which is a condition caused by excess human growth hormone. He had lots of different jobs in his earlier life. He was a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman, a nightclub bouncer, as you probably imagine, a cemetery plot salesman, a night school mathematics instructor. Um, but eventually he got into TV and he worked in a lot of roles where they sort of, you can imagine, he probably got typecast quite a bit in the things that he did. So he played a lot of roles in things like The Twilight Zone, I Dream of Genie, uh, Gilligan's Island. He was in the Monkeys TV show, Starsky and Hutch, The Fall Guy, and The Man from Uncle. Um, apparently, him and Arnold Schwarzenegger were both considered for playing the Hulk in 1977, and uh, they actually chose uh, Richard Keel because um, Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't tall enough but they decided after making that decision that they, they didn't want somebody tall they wanted somebody really muscular which is why they ended up with Lou Ferrigno so he didn't get that role other things he's done is Mr. Larson in Happy Gilmore I can't remember watching this film um, Force 10 from Navarone which is interesting because we talked about that quite a bit in the last mm. podcast Cannonball Run 2 and Tangled I've got no idea he plays in Tangled Interestingly, he also co-wrote um, and starred in The Giant of Thunder Mountain. Um, and he also uh, has a non-speaking appearance in The Nutty Professor, the 1963 version. So, yeah, Jaws. He's, I think, probably one of the most memorable of all of the villains in, in the Bond series. And especially for Roger Moore's era. He, he, for me, he's the Roger Moore villain. If you, if you were to put Roger Moore up against any henchman, it's... Jaws, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but it really sums up Roger. That's that's the ridiculous baddie he gets—a a giant with metal teeth that can bite into sharks and stuff like that. Um, but I think he's fantastic, um, and, I, and obviously by the time he gets into Moonraker, the character sort of lessens a bit. But um, yeah, one of the most important henchmen across the whole Bond series. Yeah, I I really like him in uh, the Spy Love Me. Yeah, and then his he's, character he's a, just jumps off a cliff yeah. in Moonraker. He's men- he's menacing in um, Spy Love Me up yeah. to a point. There are a couple of scenes where he's a little bit that that scene in Spy Love Me where they're the pyramids mm-hmm. um, at, with all the scaffolding. Yeah, he is quite scary in that scene. Yeah, like, when he's ripping the van to bits. Yeah, there's a mm. definite like, air of like Roger Moore of Bond is at risk. He can't do anything. It's not like Connery. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't have been put him up against Connery, would you? Wouldn't work. No. Well, I was just going to say that he's just something we keep talking about, but he's just the evolution of Oddjob, though, isn't he? Really, he's um, Oddjob had sort of s- certain amount of superhero, superhuman strength. He could crush a golf ball, but this is just like the ob- 
sort of the evolution the 1970s evolution mm. of that he's like odd job he doesn't talk he's got superhuman strength he's menacing yeah. um he's got a bit of charm about him and he's just physically imposing he really stands out from the crowd and i think you know richard kill does a terrific job um in that first film making him menacing so apparent by, by all accounts he was a lovely lovely sort of gentle giant kind of guy mm. um so yeah, he just um, brings it really to that. I'm, I'm really surprised you didn't mention James Bond Junior though, Wheatley. I did. Oh, you did. Yeah. <laughs> but I've I, I've I've gone into too much depth with James Bond Junior in a previous podcast, so uh, I don't want to talk about that too much. Because <laughs> yeah, he makes a, a, a return, but his whole jaws metal in in James Bond Junior. I seem to remember. Yeah, I'm um, I'm, I'm I'm interested like you bringing up James Bond Junior. It's uh, a <laughs> Yeah, we'll go into more depth with that on another podcast. We're not, yeah. we won't. No. <laughs> J is for Jinx, Jinx Johnson. Now, Jinx Johnson is the um, Bond girl from 2002's Die Another Day, played by Halle Berry. We did a whole episode on Die Another Day, so I'll try not to repeat too much that we mentioned in there. Um, but... She was basically, yeah, an NSA agent and was written to be the male equivalent of James Bond. She was a secret agent. She had, um, she was very good with weapons. She was very intimidating physically. She was very seductive. She used her sexuality for her own purposes. So basically just the mirror image of Bond, really. It was an evolution of that sort of um, uh, idea that was sort of introduced with Agent Triple X, I guess. Um, now, the name Jinx uh, apparently came, f- was named by Purvis and Wade after uh, someone that they knew uh, on the clubbing scene in London. And, and talking about uh, Jinx, Halle Berry said the character is super feminine, very witty, as quick as Bond and the com- with the comeback lines and as tough as nails. As written in the script, Lee Tamahori, the director of that film, said he envisaged Jinx as a, the classic Latin spitfire. And he screen tested uh, quite a few other actors before they landed on Halle Berry, including Salma Hayek, which I think is quite interesting. And then they sort of cast the net a bit wider. And if you remember from that episode, I think Jinx, uh, Halle Berry as Jinx joined the, the, the film very, very late in the day, very close to the start of production. At the time when she joined the film, she was getting rave reviews for Monsters Ball. Um, so it was considered quite a coup for James Bond to land Halle Berry uh, at this time and probably at that point was the highest caliber female actor to join the series um, in a leading role and in, in reflection of that she gets top billing on the posters with with Pierce Brosnan which is which is fair enough I think so um, talk about Monsters Ball very quickly Halle Berry actually won the best actress Oscar while they were in production on uh, die another day and was up against judy dench uh in the category um who was up for playing iris murdoch in the film iris so that's not the end of jinx though uh, and if you want to learn more about uh, the making of die another day then then go back and visit that episode because we did a full um deep dive into that one i think it's one of my favorite episodes that one but yeah after the success of die another day and it's easy to say you know that film uh, is the worst James Bond film and it killed James Bond well it's not quite the full story because actually it was one of the it was the most successful James Bond film at the time so riding off that success and obviously Halle Berry uh, her recent successes at winning of the Oscar MGM quickly announced a Jinx spin-off film and this would have been the first of its kind for the series which actually, when you think about it, it's, it's kind of crazy that they, they, they went, nearly went ahead with this. But Purvis and Wade, they, these were the long-time James Bond screenwriters, by the way, if you're not familiar with those names. But they, they were working on a script um, and Wade said it was a down and dirtier version of a Bond movie and was actually compared to being more like a Jason Bourne film. So where you can see sort of it may have, may have been more like what we got with Casino Royale than what we got with Die Another not Die Another Day, but we'll never know. Uh, Lee Tamahori, who had directed Die Another Day, was keen to direct the Jinx movie. Um, and it would have seen the character Jinx working for a think tank called the Rand Corporation. She would ride a motorbike. She would do odd jobs for Michael Madsen's Falco, who you remember from Die Another Day. And the plot was that it would actually show her origins and how she, he he rescued her from an, uh, something to do with her parents being killed and then he took her under his wing and then be- she became sort of his a- agent. And her love interest 
in the film was going to be a guy called Javier and they wanted to Javier Bardem to play. Obviously, we would get Javier Bardem later, later down the line in Skyform as Silver. So the film was offered to Stephen Frears to direct. He was well known at the time for directing My Beautiful Laundrette, Dangerous Liaisons, High Fidelity and, and, and other films. And talking about the film at uh, San Diego Comic-Con in July 2003, Halle Berry told Dark Horizons, I'm hoping we just got the script last night, the first script, and I hear it's really, really good. And talking about the tone of the film, she said, I think it won't be like Bond. It's not supposed to be a female Bond, but it's very edgy. And I think we'll have some elements of humour that Bond has because Jinx has that in the Bond movie, but it won't be like Bond. So this film was going to have a budget of 80 to 90 million dollars. But ultimately, MGM got cold feet on the idea following the, the box office struggles, as they saw, of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle and Lara Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life. They said that they thought that female-led action films were just not what people wanted to see at the cinema. So in October 2003, it was reported that the project had been cancelled due to creative differences. Uh, A couple of years later, talking to her fans on her website, Halle Berry said about the spin-off, I would have loved to do it, but that issue has been put to bed. Maybe someday I'll do a cameo in a Bond movie as Jinx. We'll see. And then more recently in in 2020, um, Halle Berry said it was very disappointing. It was ahead of its time. Nobody was ready to sink that kind of money into a black female action star. They just weren't sure of its value. And that's where we were then. And in a way, her not being able to make Jinx actually led to one of her worst decisions ever, which was to star in Catwoman. People said to her, you can't do that. You've just won the Oscar. And Halle Berry said, because I didn't do Jinx, I thought this is a great chance for a woman to be a woman of colour to be a superhero. Why wouldn't I try this? Well, I don't know if you've seen that film, but uh, yeah, she won Razzies for that. I can't remember. Uh, I, I, I might have watched it, but I've definitely not actively remembered it. It's dreadful. I mean, the CGI is awful in it just in itself, but it's got this really weird plot about face creams and Sharon Stones in it. And ugh, it's awful. So no one's ever really read the script, but a version or parts of it were leaked on online uh, actually very recently in 2021. And according to a report on Cinema Blend, it saw, as we as we discussed, Jinx, Jinx's agent going through her origin story paces with the death of her parents being the motivation for her joining up. Um, there was part of it where she would have met another MI6 agent in her travels, but it wasn't James Bond. Um, And yeah, Damien Falco, played by Michael Madsen, was going to have a big part in it as well. And talking about the plot, it said nerve gas, a global terrorist plot and everything you'd expect from a James Bond adventure. So, yeah, I mean, as as a spin-off, it would have changed everything we knew about James Bond. They talked about it at the time as being like the Winter Olympics of Bond. So you have one year, you have the Bond film. A couple of years, you have the non-Bond film. And then they come back a couple of years later with with a Bond film which is an interesting concept and something you could see them possibly doing down the line now they've got a bit more money. And actually this idea of a spin-off hasn't really completely died off because in 2019, I don't know if you remember this, but Naomi Harris said that they'd been talking about doing a Money Penny spin-off with the director of Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. She said, Barry Jenkins has wanted to do a badass, kick-ass kind of action thing with Money Penny, which I'm all for. I got together with Barbara Broccoli, our producer, and I was like, let's make this happen. But she wasn't so down for it. But maybe one day. So I thought that was interesting. The idea of this Jinx spin-off is not completely dead. Uh, so I think they are open to the idea for the right character. Um, which any any other characters you'd like to see get a, a proper spin-off movie? No. <laughs> no, I'd, if there was anything I'd like to see, I think it would be secondary characters that I don't want to see a Q series i don't want to see a, a money penny series i just those characters are you know that they, they sit they they sit in a sort of concept that you don't want to know the backstory of them i think it'd be i think the the idea it's sort of tempting to think of a story about like you know hearing about m and his time in the war or whatever but in reality i don't want to hear it i, I, I just i don't want to hear about those people but i think people maybe like tanner like your hey. one like <laughs> I think that's what I was waiting for. Here I we think go. they're an interesting one because I don't, I don't think that's going to ruin it. If you've got a backstory to Tanner, I think it, it's fine. I, I, so those sort of secondary ones, I think, would be be interesting, but definitely not any of the main characters. 
Yeah, I see it as being like, um, what's the the Marvel one, their TV show that they did? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yeah, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that sort of thing. They could do that with Tanner. Tanner would be like the main... Yeah, Yeah. just don't don't do anything that would affect the the main story. It's not fine. Yeah. What about Paloma? No Time to Die. I'd rather see her in another Bond film. A good, interesting point, yeah. I reckon I reckon Paloma could go and do her own thing and just not be... As long as they didn't bring it back to Bond, that would be the mistake that they'd mm. make. They'd, they'd yeah. do, it'd be like with The Mandalorian. They'd do enough of it to be good and then suddenly Bond turns up and it's a Bond thing. I reckon, yeah, you, you could do a really good Paloma one and as long as you just treated it with the, you know, the respect it deserves and just make it a Paloma thing. But I, I agree with what you're saying. You need to be far away enough from Bond where he's yeah. not going to come in and ruin it. Yeah. yeah. Which he inevitably would do. Yeah. There you go. That's Jinx. J is for Jordan. Johnny Jordan. Johnny Jordan was a cameraman and an aerial stunt specialist. Uh, He was born in April 1925 and he made his debut as a camera operator on a comedy called The Strangers Came in 1949. So he carved out a bit of a a, a career for himself for being a daring stunt person that that would get shots that weren't possible from the ground. So he'd, he'd go off in helicopters and stuff like that. And that's where he comes in with Bond. So he worked on You Only Live Twice. So they were shooting on in Japan on location and second unit director, Peter Hunt, uh, he, he was responsible for, for directing that. We've covered Peter Hunt very recently, last episode. So they were getting the aerial sequence with little, uh, Bond, where Bond's in Little Nelly and then he's being chased by four Spectre helicopters. And so Johnny Jordan was filming from inside one of the helicopters. Uh, he had a special uh, camera that was rigged to the helicopter's skid. The helicopter's skid is the uh, the metal frame at the bottom. Um, and then they had four Japanese stunt pilots flying the Spectre helicopters. And then flying the Nelly's Little Nelly was Ken Wallace. Uh, and he actually invented Little Nelly. And he was the only person who could fly it. So he was doubling as Connery. And so they were getting this shot in sept- on September the 22nd, 1966. And they were shooting above a village called Abino. And that's where the Spectre helicopters begin their dive and they, they go after Bond. And so Peter Hunt was stood there watching from the bottom in a jeep. And he said, our problem was, was that the helicopters were always getting too spread out. Our Japanese pilots were very nervous and wary of flying into close a formation. We had radio communication with all the copters and we were always yelling to them to close up so we could get them all in the same frame. And so Jordan's helicopter was keeping pace with with one of them when one of the helicopters caught an updraft and then it hurtled it and shoved it towards jordan's camera helicopter and Uh yeah this is bad news and the pilot no one could react quick enough because how how fast it was um and so the rotor blade actually sliced through the skids of uh, Johnny Jordan's helicopter and straight through his leg which was extended while he was getting the shot Peter Hunt watched this whole thing from the ground obviously couldn't believe what he was seeing he said we were filming this close order formation and when suddenly there was a terrible crash and the helicopter skidded on its side into a tree only a few y- yards from us the pilot was okay but Johnny's foot was hanging by a thread Typical of a cameraman's mentality, he had photographed his own foot when it got hit, hoping it might be useful for the surgeons. Oh my God. I imagine that's, that would be the last thing he'd be thinking of, wouldn't it? Uh, he said, it just so happened that this hosp- uh, the hospital was, was nearby, it was Japan's finest bone centres, and they were doing operations that very day. So the Japanese surgeons rushed him into an operating room and attempted to save his leg. At the time, there was only one artery going strong. It was hopeless. Awful. Awful stuff. Um, But they did stop the loss of blood and they preserved the leg until he got back to uh, the UK. But three months later, it had to be amputated. And this really demoralised the crew on You Only Live Twice. Peter Hunt requested that they 
abandoned the helicopter stunts for the time being and returned to London. He said it was a disaster. We were pretty early in the helicopter shooting when Jordan was hit. And we had finished only a couple of establishing shots of the copters moving across the volcanoes. So in the end, they got it in Spain. They got the shots in Spain and Johnny Jordan's work was actually finished off by a guy called Tony Brown. Uh, It's not the end of his Bond story, though, because he was fitted with an artificial limb and he returned for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Wow. Um, Yeah, so this, this, and there's a fantastic photo of this camera rig that he designed. So he's hanging from the the bottom of uh, the skids of the helicopter. If you Google it, you'll be able to see it. It's, it's fantastic. And there he is at the bottom dangling with his, um, with his camera. And so this enabled him to get those shots of Piz Gloria. So all those fantastic aerial shots in a, on a Majesty's Secret Service are courtesy of, of Johnny Jordan. He was able to get the, the bobsled uh, chase and just all the sweeping aerial views that, that we see. Very much the shots that give you a sense of the... Uh, you know, the whole sense of the film, really. It it does come to a sad ending, though. Unfortunately, on May 16th, 1969, uh, he was killed uh, while shooting Catch-22, uh, which is a 1970 film. He was the second unit director on that film, and he was shooting from the open door of a B-25 bomber. The same sort of thing happened that happened on You Only Live Twice. The passing aircraft got too close, uh, didn't make contact, but it it caused such a, a an updrift, a gust, and it threw the B fifty tied B twenty five on its side. Jordan lost his balance, got too close to the door, and unfortunately, because he didn't have the uh, dexterity with it, with his artificial limb, he was unable to to stay on, and he he ended up falling out of the aircraft into the ocean. So, God, yeah. Awful stuff, but you know, it was he refused to wear safety harnesses and stuff like that. It was very much of what he was about. He was, you know, living living on the edge. And um, but the, the shots he the shots he got were excellent. You know, it, it's the sort of stuff that's now just done by either CGI or a drone, I imagine. Uh, he also worked on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well. So some of those aerial shots, which the the the, the, the flying car depends on those shots. So um, yeah, sad end, but. Um, yeah, there's Johnny Jordan. What an icon. Mm. What a story. Well, from one icon of stunts to another stunt icon. Um, Jay is for Julien, uh, Remy Julien. Now, Remy Julien is a man that we have spoke about many, many times over the course of this podcast. He's a stuntman who has, we've talked in depth about the various stunts that he's done for for, for um, a number of the films that he's been a part of. So I'm going to try and avoid going through the actual stunts because we're going to do those quite a lot um, when we talk about the films and we have done already. Uh, but Remy Julien was a um, French stunt driver. He was born in uh, 1930 and died actually in January 2021. But he was, uh, how old was he then? He was 91 when he died in January 2021. But sadly, he actually died of, of um, well, associated with COVID. But he did a lot of work throughout his life. He was a very, very busy man um, and did some quite amazing things as as well as working on the, the Bond films. Um during uh, World War Two, he was evacuated from Paris um, and he was sort of dared by children around the area to uh, ride a bicycle across this local canal. Um, and he did it really well. And, it's, and it, it's, that sort of kicked him off in his career riding motocross um, uh, to the point where in his 20s he became French motocross champion um, in 1957. And from that point, he he drew the attention of a stunt coordinator called uh, Jill Delamere, and Delamere was pretty big in the movie industry. And he sort of picked, he he started working with um, Remy Julien, and in his first gave him his first screen appearance in 1964 in a uh, film called Le Grand Vadril where he was play he was a, a German army motorcyclist but sadly uh, Delabert died in 1966 during a stunt so Julien sort of picked up um, a lot of the work that he was meant to be doing and that's that's what propelled him to you know getting getting all these gigs because he he very quickly started picking up things from his his mentor 
so he worked in a lot of French film and television. Um, and he, uh, uh, the big break that he got f- outside of France was uh, the Italian job. So he did a lot of work on the Italian job. And the producer who worked on that, Michael Dealey, said uh, during our initial meeting with Remy, um, uh, Peter Collinson, who was the director, and I were de- uh, delighted to discover that he was prepared to take the chase sequence even further than we had envisaged suggesting a different range of hair-raising stunts that could be written into the script. And this was sort of a key to Remy Julien. He took stunts and just pushed them to the limits and made them like way better than they were originally planned to be in the script. Um, he he uh, planned and coordinated all the sequences in the Italian job with, with the included vehicles, uh, which included that big mini chase sequence that everyone knows the Italian job for, even if you haven't seen it. You suddenly think of a, a mini when you think about the Italian job. And I don't know if you, I imagine you've both seen that, but you've got that amazing rooftop sequence um, in Turin in um, the Italian job. So he's in, in charge of all of that sort of stuff. Um, so he became like a sort of go-to guy in, in, in Hollywood. He, he, he was known for being brilliant at what he did. And as a result, they pulled him onto the Bond films, which, as you know, always want the best stunts. And Remy Julien is not a CGI man. He is a... A real life stunt driver so he that's what bond films want that's what the most successful bond films use um and he worked quite closely with uh, john glenn as well so he did stunts for six bond films and then five of those were with john glenn he did some amazing stunt sequences for throughout the bond series um i'm not going to go into depth about how these work because it's going to ruin a, the stuff we're talking about in later episodes but uh, we've already talked about the Citroen 2CV sequence in For Your Eyes Only. In A View to a Kill, he did the fire engine sequence, as well as the Renault 11. Um, and there was the big Aston Martin V8 sequence in Austria in uh, The Living Daylights, which, what's what's it called? The winterized Aston Martin. Oh, that is uh, an absolute doozy, that is. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, that. And then uh, he also um, did the petrol tanker um, in License to Kill which is like, you know, the massive petrol tanker that does a wheelie. So he's that's, he worked on that. So apparently Julien was involved in over 1,400 films. He was famous for the realism in it, that only comes from an actual motor expert who drives these things because he knows how to drive them, not because he's trying to create amazing looking sequences. He knows how to do these. Uh, he worked with uh, Renault and Citroen, amongst other brands, um, and he was often called on to help out with TV uh, and film commercials. Um, and he also had a partnership with Italian uh, um, brand Fiat in the 1980s to work with them on various things. In 1999, he worked on a, a Taxi 2. Have you either of you seen Taxi or Taxi 2? Luc Besson film? No, I have not. Yeah, um, I've seen the first one. Very good, actually. Uh, but the so the during that um, film, a stunt sequence caused the death of a cameraman who was called Alain uh, Dutart, and there was a big law law case that went that followed it. So the prosecutor was saying that Julien was responsible for it because he hadn't taken the necessary measures to for the security of the stunt in question, um, and neglected speed calculations of the car and length of the jump. Um, so he, so Julien got an 18 month suspended jail sentence and a £13,000 fine. But according to um, various articles, Julien uh, appealed um, against the uh, production company um, of taking shortcuts in safety equipment. Um, and eventually, after uh, the appeal, got his fine reduced to €2,000 and his jail sentence was reduced to six months. And then, uh, so yeah, pretty pretty big thing to happen for a, for a stunt driver. It's like your worst nightmare as a stunt driver, isn't it? A stunt going wrong and it turning into a big lawsuit. Um, so that was a bit of a low point for his career. He worked as well on a... Oh, he began a school, sorry, in France um, for stunt drivers and mechanics uh, spe- specific to actual stunt work for sort of TV and film work. Um, and... He also coordinated uh, Motors Action, which was a stunt show um, at Walt Disney Studios in Paris. And his two sons, Michel and Dominique, have become very skilled drivers or uh, stunt coordinators in their own right. And they now run the Remy Julien owned family business um, or the, whatever that, that that business is now called. Now they've taken it over. Died at 91, so had a pretty pretty full life i think he's probably one sounds like one of the busiest stunt coordinators who's ever existed and if you've ever listened to any more of these podcasts that we've done his name gets brought up a lot 
Um, but yeah, sadly died um, of COVID-associated uh, uh, death in 2021. Uh, what he said um, about his profession is, uh, you must have constant concern for, for, for perfection, precision and absolute safety while ensuring the wishes of the director are met. My job was to calculate the risks. That is Remy Julien. That's an incredible amount of films, isn't it? Madness. Yeah. This is just what happens when, when you're... When you're that good at what you do, yeah, you just have to, and especially with stunts. You, if somebody says to you, if you've got a big budget, and they say you want, we want you to do this stunt, and there's a chance people could die, yeah. you're probably going to go get me the best person. Yeah, oh, that's Remy Julien, and he just gets pulled into all these things. I imagine a lot of them he wasn't doing a lot, but you know he just he just knew how to do it, so he mm. came in and made sure that it was as good and as safe as it could be, but. Amazing man, and just, you know, ridiculous list of things that he'd achieved. Yeah, like you say, we'll be speaking about him a lot more on episodes down the line as well. He's uh, a huge presence in the Bond films and the stunts and what have you. So, uh, yeah, Mm. Uh, an all-timer, one for the Hall of Fame. Oh, yes. Jay is for Jerry, Jerry Jarreau. But actually, his name was Charles, um, Charles Giroux, uh, known to everyone as Jerry. He was the publicity manager um, for the James Bond films in Europe for 14 James Bond films, starting with the very first Doctor No, right up to Licence to Kill. Didn't do all of them in that sequence, but did a lot of them. He was born in San Francisco in 1923. Um, He joined the army uh, in 1942, um, where and while he was in the army, he had his sort of uh, first uh, brushes with showbiz. He would accompany actresses when they were visiting military installations, you know, to do like um, what do they call like R&R type things. So they would he would help take them around the different places, different bases. And he also helped one of them um, while they were promoting. So those two, Gloria Dehaven and June Allison, he helped shepherd them around while they were promoting a film called Two Girls and a Sailor. He wasn't just a behind the scenes guy in the army, though. He did fight on the front lines. He took part in the Normandy landings. Um, so he was in D-Day in 1944 and was actually given a um, Legion of Honour by France in um, 2019 by Emmanuel Macron uh, as part of the 75th anniversary of the invasion. So played a big part there. He volunteered uh, after that to serve in the Office of Special Services. And this is where he became into booking entertainment for the Allied troops. And he left the army in 1945 and he went to then work as an assistant manager in in a cinema uh, Jerry Jarreau then joined a press department of the Fox West Coast Theatre Corps and then later joined Paramount Theatres. This is when cinema um, movie studios had uh, cinema chains as well. So in 1950, he landed a position uh, in the publicity department at Paramount Pictures in L.A. And at Paramount, he worked with Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and he also represented Marilyn Monroe, in England during the production of a film called The Prince and the Showgirl. So while he was at Paramount, he worked alongside loads of really iconic filmmakers, including Cecil B. DeMille, Alfred Hitchcock, Marlon Brando, Cary Grant, and, you'll like this one, Gloria Graham. Now we're talking. Right, let's get stuck in. (laughs) So see the episode on Barbara Broccoli for Wheatley's uh, rabbit hole on Gloria Graham. Um... In 1956, um, Jerry Giroux joined a company called the Arthur P. Jacobs PR Agency. And um, this was when he went to Europe to look after Marilyn Monroe uh, for the film that she made with Laurence Olivier, The Prince and the Showgirl. And while he was there, he just fell in love with Europe. It was actually ver- with via his association with Marilyn Monroe that Jerry Giroux met Cubby Broccoli, who had been, yeah, who had worked with Marilyn Monroe's partner, Johnny Hyde. So they sort of, Jerry then got connected to Cubby. And so he then, like I said, loved his time in Europe. And basically after that, stayed in Europe for the rest of his life. And he joined United Artists in 1960 to handle European publicity for the studio. And obviously after 1960, United Artists' biggest asset then became James Bond. Um, and he became, Charles Giroux just came heavily invested in promoting uh, Sean Connery in the, in the James Bond films. And he worked very closely on the first five Bond films. Talking about seeing Connery's screen test, he thought, this is a very ballsy guy. 
And he actually took Sean Connery on his pr- first promotional tour across Europe. And he came up with this idea of uh, taking Connery on a promotional tour with a blonde and a brunette and a redhead to travel with him. He also arranged for Connery. This is quite an interesting press uh, stunt that he arranged. I don't know if you've ever heard this one before, but while they were promoting one of the Bond films, I think possibly Thunderball, he took Connery to a European casino And basically what they did is they set it up so that Connery beat the casino and they had to pay out all this money to him. And then that story then got into the newspapers and created publicity around the film. But it was all a setup. He said the stunt was easy to accomplish because the wheel was rigged. The bets were rigged. And for a brief period of time, Sean, as well as one or two other people who were part and parcel of the operation, was sitting there winning money until he literally broke the bank. It was not that difficult, but I must tell you, as soon as it it was uh, handed over, the money was handed back. It was quite a few billion lira. So that's quite a funny story of the sort of uh, press antics they were getting up to. Um, And I I, I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about the Goldfinger premiere where Sean Connery drove the DB5 to the Paris premiere. Do you remember that? And there was like screaming fans and one tried to climb through the window. And anyway, Jerry Jerome was driving in the DB5 with him that day. So, yeah, talking about working with Harry and Cubby, he said, I spent more time with Cubby and Harry than I did in my own office. They just took over my life. And he described Cubby as being one of the finest human beings who was an honour and a privilege to know. During this time at UA, he also became heavily involved in promoting the Beatles on their films Hard Day's Night and Help. And he was actually played a big part in the, um, I don't remember the help front cover, but the semaphore that they shot in the Alps for the film. So they spell out the word help. It doesn't actually spell out the word help, but that was part of his um, publicity for the film. um, Mm. And that became the the band's album cover. So he worked on the first Bond films up to You Only Live Twice. And then he sort of left to go and do his own thing, working on other United Artists films. But Cubby Broccoli brought him back into E.ON for The Man With The Golden Gun to look after publicity for that and then also then again brought him back on for Moonraker and then in 1980 he uh, Charles Giraud joined Eon Productions full-time as the director of publicity and it was um, Jerry Giraud who apparently recommended Carol Bouquet to play Melina Havelock in For Your Eyes Only uh, for Octopussy Jerry Giraud wrote and directed a behind-the-scenes film called James Bond in India which you can find on the uh, Blu-ray and DVD So from A View to a Kill onwards, he was the director of marketing. Uh, He loved working with Roger Moore. He said when it came to selling a film, no one on the promotional field could hope for a more professional and cooperative star than Roger Moore. He was truly a publicist's dream. He was also at E.ON when Brosnan was signed as uh, for The Living Daylights and was actually in L.A. preparing a press conference uh, and was due to announce a Pierce Brosnan as the new Bond when it obviously they pulled the plug uh, due to Remington Steel, CR Pierce Brosnan episode for details on that. He was then obviously had to switch very quickly on to pr- announcing Timothy Dalton as James Bond. And actually, he formed, forged a very good friendship with Timothy Dalton during his time on those last two Bond films that he worked on. And they were such good friends. Jerry Jarreau actually retired, uh, fully retired in 1990. But Timothy Dalton asked him very politely if he would mind coming out of retirement to help handle his announcement that he was leaving as Bond, which he did. And then he also worked on Piers Brosnan being announced as Bond for, for, for Goldeneye. So he was obviously someone that Eon relied on very heavily, as did everyone around the Bond films to help. So uh, Jerry Jarreau retired uh, then uh, to Spain and he lived there for the rest of his life. And he died in October 2021, aged 98. Mm. But he had uh, has released a book called Bond, The Beatles and My Moment with Marilyn, 50 Years as a Movie Marketing Man, which was launched at the um, Bond in Motion exhibition in London and was attended by loads of people from the Bond world. Mark O'Connell was there, um, you know, anyone and everyone who was in the Bond films, John Glenn, they were, they were all there to support him. John Glenn, in fact, said about Jerry Jarreau, Jerry was very much a part of the James Bond phenomenon. He took care of all aspects of publicity, particularly looking after the actors, which could be a trying task at times. And Doug Redenius, who was one of the founders of the Ian Ian Fleming Foundation, who worked with Jerry on his autobiography, said Jerry was a giant in the film business during the golden age of Hollywood, a formidable publicist who took what he did as seriously as he took his time during the war years. Failure was not an option. 
He was my mentor, my hero, and like a second father to me for nearly 40 years. There will never be another one like him. So that's it. That's Jerry Giroux, someone very much behind the scenes that you'll never see on camera, but someone instrumental in helping the Bond films to gain uh, their popularity throughout the, the, the early part of the of the series. So very important, man. What a career. What a career. So that about wraps up our episode on the letter J. There is one character that we need to mention under the letter J. Should we talk about Dr. Jones? Dr. Jones? Dr. Christmas Jones? We should have been talking about Dr. Jones the whole way through. Yeah, should have been an hour on, on Christmas Jones. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously played by Denise Richards in The World Is Not Enough. She was the James Bond series first ever recipient of the Razzie, of a Razzie Award. Um, and in 2006 was named by Entertainment Weekly as the worst Bond girl ever. What do you guys think? She's one of them. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a list. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, to be honest, it, yeah, it's such a strange idea. that it, I imagine people trying to get that by today. It's an awful low point of the Bond series, just done mm. really badly. Yeah, I It's not the- just that she's a bad Bond girl. It's like the whole concept behind her is so weak and offensive it just doesn't work yeah and her name being christmas just for the sake of a cheap horrible low gag yeah we'll talk about this when we get to the 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 world is not enough episode down the line but something i did learn about christmas jones is that apparently they gave her the name christmas jones uh named after a judge in the case oh so purvis and wade wrote a story uh, a film called let him have it about the last man who was hanged in England. Right. Anyway, the judge in that in that um, case was called Judge Christmas something or other. And that's where the name came from. But in the end, it was just used as, as jokes in yeah. The World Is Not Enough. Mm. I think she's a solid idea for a character, but I think she was underserved by, first of all, the costume department. Oh, yeah. Who basically dressed her as Lara Croft. Lara Croft, yeah. Yeah. Which She's, she's not... They've not really thought about them, have they? Like they've they've had that character in a lot of Bond films. You've got Doctor Goodhead, very similar concept. Yeah, a scientist that also, but in that in that Goodhead's actually quite. She's not massively rounded, but better than Christmas Jones. They've sort of taken some stuff from a lot older Bonds, and they're not really. They've just made it really bad. Yeah, apparently, and this is something else I learned while just reading about her earlier. She was originally going to have a completely different career, not going to be a nuclear scientist, but was going to be an insurance investigator. And that got nixed because um, Pierce Brosnan was making the Thomas Crown Affair and his love interest in that is an insurance investigator. So they had to change it. Mm. And also Christmas Jones was originally going to be Polynesian, but I think they decided to go for an American Bond girl. I think because the Electra is French and so they wanted something a bit more relatable to the western audiences i don't know um mm. but is she as bad as what's her face in you only live twice not you only live twice uh view to a kill <laughs> stacy <laughs> yeah which one's the worst out of those two which one's the most useless i would say stacy's worse because at least christmas jones is memorable no yeah no you're wrong because <laughs> christmas jones is apparently a doctor yes but i mean it's, i feel like it's a falsehood Mm. There's nothing to prove that. She wears a scientist oh, coat. Oh, come on, isn't, you've fallen for it, haven't you? You've fallen for the coat. Um, what's her face? Uh, also meant to be like a geologist. PhD. Geologist, yeah. Yeah. Well, so they're, they're both bottom. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a tough... Well, I've had a special on that. I, I could talk about this for about three hours. <laughs> the worst Bond girls. No, come on, we're about positivity. I'd, I, I don't think she's as... Well, I think, she, yeah, she is pretty bad, but um, I think it's more costume and poor writing rather than Denise Richards. Yeah, I'm not blaming fault. Denise Richards for this. No. No, no it's definitely not her fault. No. But she, she hasn't got a lot to work with, much like, <laughs> much like Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, I think that wraps up this episode on the letter J. Uh, as it, uh, the alphabet dictates, our, our, our next episode will be on the letter K. Um, but I thought just before we go, I thought we're just touching our, our listener emails, which we haven't really talked about um, much. 
over the last few episodes, but we have had some really nice emails recently. So if you'll indulge me for a second, I had a nice email from a guy called John Dolphin, assuming that's his real name. And he talked about the Fiores Only episode. And you remember that we talked about Cortina D'Ampezzo and how it had hosted the Winter Olympics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So he says... I've been there, haven't I? Yeah, this is the one you said that you'd been to but yeah. didn't realise. Um, he said that in September 1981, the site of the 1988 Winter Games was going to be decided in Baden-Baden in West Germany. And Cortina D'Ampezzo was bidding to hold the games for a second time and he said that he remembers a news story on the canadian broadcasting corporation that the cortina bidding committee was offering free admission to fioris only in baden baden so that people could check out cortina's facilities on the big screen and despite that the winning bid went to calgary so um that's interesting isn't it that they were trying to get them to go and see the bond film in order to see the facilities i thought it was quite interesting um and he talks about john dolphin he talks a little bit about the future bond films this is something we've talked about a lot like what do they do after no time to die um and john's idea is to make the next film sort of a portmanteau type film and link a load of different james bond short stories together Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which i thought was quite interesting he said the film could present a number of shorter self-contained segments within a cinema- standard cinematic runtime as a kind of deconstructive reboot. The mm. stories could differ in tone from lighter to grittier. They could be linked thematically or have some narrative connection or not. And they could still offer high action, big screen climax with lots of shooting and explosions without having to stretch everything into a single epic story. And somewhere in the middle, you could have a period bond adventure. Mm. So I quite like that idea, actually. Yeah. Directed mm. by Wes Anderson. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, but I guess you could even get different bi- could bi- directors. directors. Yeah, it's a bit yeah, of a thinking, Ed- thinking man's bond. You you probably wouldn't be able to bank on getting you know a lot of money for that film, but it'd be a pleaser. It'd be a nice film for the for the real fans. Yeah, it'd be a really interesting way to mix things up. And also, you could get all these different people who's t- everyone's talked about being James Bond. You know, you could get Idris Elba to do one section. You get Pierce Brosnan back to do one section. Mm. You could get a, a female Bond, you know, uh, all these different ideas that people have talked about. Get them all out of the way in one film. Yeah. Jinx. Jinx, yeah. A Pixar, Pixar animated short. But, yes, oh, an animated. This is, this is the start of the multiverse, isn't it? The James Bond multiverse. <laughs> the Bondiverse. Yeah, John Dolphy. I think that's a gr- fantastic idea. Anyway, I think that's great. James Bond Jr. in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, another email here from Luke Payne, and he is talking about Jenny Flex, because <laughs> we talked oh, yeah. about Jenny Flex in the F episode. And he says he thought for years the name was an innu- innuendo uh, referencing the term genuflect, which means to get down on one knee- one's knees for respect. Yeah, I, re- I read this when I was researching that, and I couldn't quite get my head around. It, it just seems so far away from it. It's it's a stretch, isn't it? Um, but, but the fact that you have that like, nobody knows what that phrase means, so it's, yeah. it, does, it doesn't work. A double entendre has got to be you've got to understand the entendre. So you said typically it refers to a show of respect, but in reference to a bongo, one might consider a different reason for her to be on her knees. I suppose avoiding such shameless innuendo is just another thing that makes your podcast so endearing. Thank you for that email, Luke. Uh, really appreciate it. Mm. And then finally, uh, this is from Guillaume uh, Dorig. He says, my name's Guillaume Dorig, a Swiss-English Bond fan living in Australia, just north of Coffs Harbour. He sent a long email, very full of praise, which we won't read out here. Um, but he said, is there any way I can support the show? Do you have a Patreon or something? I would be happy to chip in a few bucks a month, which is very kind of you to say, but we don't currently have a way of supporting the show like that. The only way we ask people to support the show is by leaving a good rating on Spotify or Apple and telling your friends about the show. Or, so, um, or, or, or three tickets to Jamaica and a few nights in the Gold Taylor. Right then, now onto the complaints. Who's doing them? <laughs> points of view. Points of view. But no, just to, just to wrap things up, just a few of the shout-outs from people who've emailed recently. We, we haven't included them, but Darren Ledsom and Mark Hevingham, they sent us the radio dramas, links to the radio dramas to thank you to them uh john o'sullivan left a nice message on facebook a guy called andrew moore he sent us a link to a video of a brilliant video of 22 james bond films cut together and 
probably my favorite email which was christian collard who emailed us while we were having a hiatus asking us when the new episode was coming out so thank you christian i really appreciate it and thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast we really appreciate it if you listen to this point you are in the minority i think so uh thanks again <laughs> but if people do want to email the show and get in touch with us how do they get us podcast at jamesbond a to z.co.uk and on social at jamesbond a to z on instagram twitter and facebook we will uh, be back next week with an episode on the letter K. It's a lot of different characters, so it might be different, slightly different format next week. But uh, please uh, join us for that one. James Bond A to Z will return next week. Thanks, you all. <laughs> Ciao. <What>? Ciao. <laughs> the James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly Jacinta Johnson my friends call me Jinx my friends call me James Bond Jinx you say born on Friday the 13th you believe in bad luck let's just say my relationships don't seem to last hmm I know the feeling. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.